Dear fellow settler colonizer, I'm sitting here thinking back to a time last year when I was at the Columbus Museum of Art. I was sitting in the sculpture garden, the Patricia M. Jurgensen sculpture garden, and I was listening to this sound installation that you're also hearing by the Scottish artist Susan Phillips. It's called Study for Strings, and it was originally made for the Documenta 13 exhibition and was played in an installation on the train tracks uh, back in 2012 for that exhibition in Kassel, Germany. And as Phillips describes the work, it's a contemporary interpretation of a work of the same name from 1943 by Pavel Haas, who's a Czech composer. And he composed the score while imprisoned in the Theresienstadt concentration camp, which is now in the Czech Republic. Now, as Phillips writes, the Nazis filmed a performance of the work at the camp as part of a 1944 propaganda film, Theresienstadt. But immediately after the filming was completed, Haas and other members of the prisoners' orchestra were killed. The conductor survived the Holocaust and, after the war, reconstructed Haas's original composition. So for Phillips's work, her 2012 reworking, as you can hear, she isolates the viola and cello parts, recorded them into multiple channels, in a note-by-note deconstruction of the original composition. And as she writes, it's replete with fraught silence. These charged absences call attention to the fact that other instruments and the musicians who played them are absent. I was thinking about these fraught silences while sitting there in the cold and looking in at the diners in the Shoko Cafe Alongside one area of the cafe is a glass cabinet that contains a certain number of objects not on show in the galleries, upstairs, or elsewhere in the museum, but there to look upon the diners as they munch down their scampy shrimp and their cinnamon rolls. And I, th I can't remember the name of what this cabinet is called, uh, but it contained Inuit soapstone sculptures, Pueblo pottery, uh, as well as other uh, works. And if you go to the Columbus Museum of Art website, you'll probably have to find them under a section called Tribal Art. And thinking about these objects there to look over and be looked at while people are having their lunch, it made me think about an exhibition that I'd just seen. This exhibition was by the Indian photographer Gary Gill and it was called Object Set. Now this exhibition restaged a sequence of photographs that Gill had made uh, beginning in 2015, uh, the same year that Phillips's work was installed at the CMA. These works I saw in Documenta 14 in 2017, along with another series of works by Gill, uh, th this was in Kassel, called Fields of Sight. Now, the interesting thing about these works and why the Inuit's soapstone sculptures made me think of them was the fact that these works are collaborations between Gill and indigenous artists. Gill's work, Acts of Appearances, was a collaboration with artists from the Kokna 
and Warli tribes in the Jawa district. And what the collaboration consisted of was the photographer commissioning artists, including the brothers Subhas and Bhagavan Dharma Kadu, who were the apprentices of the legendary craftsman Dharma Kadu. Uh, she commissioned them with this proposal where they, along with their families, as well as other volunteers, and this was up to about 30 people in total, would create a new set of masks that were not the sacred Bahada masks uh, that were used for certain rituals and had strict rules of creation because of parts of powerful divinities. But what Gill asked of these artists was to, to work on representations that existed in their contemporary world. Uh, these include specific individuals as well as representing certain emotions like love or sadness or fear or anger, as well as animals and certain objects including food packaging and, and these kinds of mundane objects. And then including the artists as well as other actor volunteers they would be photographed by Gill uh, in different scenes and scenarios around the village, uh, and they appeared in these photographs in, in, again, mundane settings. So I saw this exhibition at the Columbus Museum of Art, and in addition to having the photographs from this set, which was uh, in the collection of uh, Neil Rector, a Columbus-based uh, collector, there was also a, a photograph of another series that Gill produced starting in 2013 called Fields of Sight. And these were collaborations, again, for photographic collaborations, but this time with Warli artist Rajesh Vangad. And again, um, in another visit to Adivasi village, um, this time in coastal Maharashtra, uh, Gill photographs Vangad looking into the landscape and landscapes that are changing, mainly through industry and a kind of transformation onto these landscapes. And after taking these photographs, the Warli artist Vanguard would then draw and paint the, the iconic small stick-like figures of the Warli tradition onto, the, onto the, the photographs. And I've always been startled by these works, not only in the juxtaposition of the photographs of Gill with the figures and icons of the Wali tradition scattered throughout. I was lucky enough to see an incredible exhibition of Wali art at the um, Asia-Pacific Triennial uh, back in 2015, and where I saw some of Van Gogh's work, but also this kind of dialogue that happened between the photographer and the Wali artist, a kind of collaboration and a bringing into presence of the Wali practice. And the same is for the case of the mask makers, the Adifazi Papamache artists from the Kokna in the Jawa district. There was a bringing to presence vernacular forms through the mechanism of photography. And Gill's work offered to me a kind of sense of what relationship there can be with indigenous and non-indigenous artists, what kind of collaboration is possible, and how questions of acknowledgement and care are so essential for certain collaborations. I remember in the Columbus Museum of Art, there was a, a list of all the names of the 
actors and mask makers, all the collaborators from the village that Gill worked with. At the same time, I was brought back to the objects in the glass cabinet in the cafe, and it made me think about how the institution of the museum, while bringing the artists careful articulation of their collaboration with indigenous communities, while bringing that into the gallery space, didn't do anything else with it, didn't really think about it as a, a space of an open question about how objects are not just uh, um, archived in the museum, in the, in the space, but also how they are maintained by living indigenous communities and artists. And what would it mean to, like Gill, open up a collaboration as an institution to and with those indigenous artists? Uh, I keep thinking of the Inuit Cape Dorset artist, Kenajuak Ashevak, and knowing that there is a, a stone print of an owl called Night Hunter in an area of the Columbus Museum of Art that is for children called the Wonder Room. Um, next are Audubon images of animals as well. Um, and I can't help feel like there's, while it's interesting to think about intercultural dialogue, uh, what would it mean for the museum to think about that community which it was, it has an object from, from such an iconic, important artist from the Inuit tradition in their collection, and how would it connect with contemporary Inuit artists? And what would it mean to bring that work out and, and present it in a way like Gill's work as part of a, a collaboration, as part of an institutional collaboration. Last month, when we had our first episode of this radio show, Dear Fellow Settler Colonizer, I started by discussing land acknowledgements. And uh, as far as I can tell, the Columbus Museum of Art doesn't seem to have a land acknowledgement. And one way the museum could engage with this absence, this silence, from within their institutional presentation could be to think about engaging with contemporary indigenous artists in terms of the land in which this museum stands and the history of settler colonialism that enabled this museum to exist in the first place. I would imagine that in any collaboration with an indigenous artist, whether from a local or regional, uh, or even national context, would think about the museum in relation to its collection. And would also think about not just creating a land acknowledgement as an institutional settler move to innocence, but actually as a starting point for a dialogue and making the museum into a potential accomplice in a decolonial process. Now I want to turn to this topic of decolonization and the specific phrase settler moves to innocence 
I first read about these in the 2012 article by Eve Tuck and Kay Wayne Yang called Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. It was originally published in Decolonization, Indigeneity, Education and Society. Now, what Eve Tuck and Kay Wayne Yang mean by settler moves to innocence, uh, they state as follows. There is a long and bumbled history of non-Indigenous peoples making moves to alleviate the impacts of colonisation. The too easy adoption of decolonizing discourse, making decolonization a metaphor, is just one part of that history, and it taps into pre-existing tropes that get in the way of more meaningful potential alliances. We think of the enactment of these tropes as a series of moves to innocence, which problematically attempt to reconcile settler guilt and complicity and rescue settler futurity. So when they're describing these moves to innocence, Tuck and Yang uh, include claims of long-lost indigenous ancestry, homogenizing and mentally equating certain experiences of oppression with indigeneity, or even adopting indigenous practices and ways of life, playing Indian, as it were. Now, Tuck and Yang claim that all these moves to innocence distance the speaker and here I am speaking to you as a settler colonizer, speaking to you as settler colonizers, from our settler identity and the accompanying responsibilities that we have. Instead of bringing us closer to the marginalized status of indigenous people, without taking away any of our privileges. Decolonization is about the repatriation of land, power and privilege, and it cannot happen without complete disorder, uh, as Fanon wrote. And so there's this sense of the moves to innocence are superficial strategies and gestures. Now I want to just focus on one element of what Tuck and Yang mentioned here, that these moves to innocence get in the way of more meaningful potential alliances. Now I want to think about these alliances or potential alliances in a way that brings us back to Gary Gill and her collaborations with indigenous Indian artists and communities, but also think about a way of really challenging our positions as settlers and our what we could call a desire for indigeneity that is accompanied within creating such alliances or the desire to create such alliances. And this language of alliance makes us think of the limitations of the kind of performativity and potential of allyship. There's a great article called In Complices Not Allies, Abolishing the Ally Industrial Complex as part of the Indigenous Action Media uh, Network. And they write that we should be thinking about uh, us settlers should be thinking about being an accomplice to indigenous peoples, which means a certain criminalizing in support and solidarity. Because there is no safe reconciliation between being a settler and an anti-colonial ally. It requires us settlers to participate in the destruction of colonialism by carrying out behavior that would be considered criminal for the position of allies. For example, redistributing resources, betraying the institutions we're part of, and weaponizing our privilege and access. In other words, putting our bodies in direct line of action. Now, 
it's really important to think about this question of the transition from allyship to accomplice in terms of understanding what this indigenous action media describe as the ally industrial complex. These are versions of what Tuck Yang would call settler moves to innocence, but with specifically focused on the position uh, that, in many senses, one of the positions that I occupy in this show, which is a sense of engagement and emphasis on indigenous art making, uh, but also acknowledging my own settler positionality. So the ally industrial complex would think about salvation, or even this work as a form of self-therapy. There's also the potential for exploitation and co-optation of indigenous artwork and creativity. There's also the very gesture of self-proclaiming or confessing that you're an ally. Parachuters rush in to the front line seemingly out of nowhere, and this falls under the kind of saviour complex. Then there's a specific position that I occupy as an academic, the, the question of the patronizing role that academics can have when they maintain colonial institutional power on one level, but then claim that they need to unlearn the, uh, um, that, that tradition while still being part of it without the necessary undoing and smashing of those institutions from within. The one element in which being an academic can transition from an ally to an accomplice is actually leveraging resources and support and even betraying our institutional framework in order to support liberation struggles. Academics can also be in this role of gatekeeper, seeking power over and not with others. Now, in this article about the ally industrial complex, indigenous action media describes some ways forward for us settlers to be anti-colonial accomplices. The first thing they say is that we should articulate our relationship to indigenous peoples whose land we are occupying beyond land acknowledgement and recognition. The other way in which we need to do this is to listen with respect to a range of cultural practices and dynamics that exist within the indigenous communities that we're engaging with. Now, we shouldn't be motivated by personal shame or guilt. That said, if we have agendas, we need to be explicit about them. We also need to work as an accomplice by building mutual consent and trust. But how does this happen in reality? How do we get to become accomplices? Dear fellow settler colonizer, we'll find out one way through the work of the New Red Order. Taking the idea of accomplice to a whole other level, the New Red Order, or NRO, is a changeable collective that collaborates with so-called informants to create both video and performance artworks that question a desire for indigeneity in dominant settler culture. My first fully-fledged experience of their work was at the Toronto Biennial of Art in 2019, where they had installed Never Settle, an ambitious, multi-part media project that included a public recruitment campaign for their informants. 
As part of the public programs of the biennial, New Red Order presented Believable Impossibilities, which was a lecture, performance, and treaty orchestration featuring Christopher Bracken and Ange Loft, DJed by Yamantaka Sonic Titan. And it was the first time that I'd heard Europe's Cherokee, which you're hearing in the background as I speak. There's obviously something very hilarious and also worrying about the use of this song by the Swedish rock band Europe uh, as part of a, an event for indigenous artists. And, and I think that that was purposeful by the DJ at the event to kind of get us into the zone of laughing at our settler colonial desires, uh, not only to somehow confess the, uh, the sins of our complicity with the settler colonial project, but also to engage with a kind of desire to move away from that or to engage with indigenous artists as part of that process. And, you know, I really felt kind of addressed and seen at this event and in a lot of New Red Order's work as a settler colonizer, because that's exactly what they want us to think. They want to create a space for us to uh, reflect on uh, the, these desires at the same time as to acknowledge their existence and to acknowledge that these white moves and settler moves to innocence are, are part of the whole system of settler colonialism. And they need to be addressed as much as just uh, buried away amid so much guilt. A figure that's really important to me as well with their project is their kind of spokesperson or proxy, the actor Jim Fletcher. And maybe I resonate with him because of my own name. Uh, I, there's no relation, but I definitely feel an affinity with uh, Jim Fletcher's performance for New Red Order, that he takes on this role. He confesses himself as an ex-Indian impersonator and a kind of reformed Indian impersonator who now works for indigenous artists to unsettle uh, his colonial identity. Perhaps the best way to describe uh, the experience of a New Red Order performance or project is in the words of someone that was co-opted into one of their actions as part of a video work that they did. Uh, and this is in the pages of the Millennium Film Journal, and it's written by Patrick Harrison. Night, so-called Syracuse, New York, in the Onondanga Nation homeland. Theatre lights glisten in the drizzle, reflect off the gleaming back of our rain-speckled SUV, sharp you on Broadway, the first unlawful act of a night of crimes against reality. Five of us are inside, accomplices, masked and armed, a shoulder-mounted cannon EOS C-100 and a 7D for a sidearm, two grenade-like VR cameras, laser scanners, a cluster of GoPros, resembling a naval mine. We're about to commit a heist. The target, a massive statue of Christopher Columbus in Columbus Circle. Every town has got one, or something like it, a monument to settler colonialism that doubles as a concession to the ethno-nationalist micropolitics of the municipal melting pot. The 15th century Genoese conqueror towers over the plaza atop an obelisk. At his feet are four Indian heads in war bonnets. They look as if they're supposed to look as if they're supporting him. Instead, they just look decapitated. A monstrous work of false consciousness brought to you by the Works Progress Administration. Ashley Byler slams on the brakes. Before we get out, Rizata Safari conducts a smudging ceremony. 
The air is thick with sacred smoke and laser light. We leak out of the car into the plaza and creep towards the statue like a Bhutto troop of Navy SEALs. Our heads are covered in dripped translucent silicone. We look like our faces are melting off. The plaza is eerie, all lit up by Christmas lights and empty but for Jim Fletcher, who glances up from a copy of The Anthropology of Experience and smiles as if he's been expecting us. Together we form a hydra of counter-hegenomic gazers, as if we could choke Cristoforo Colombo to death with our eyes. Bailey Schweitzer shoots with her C-100 from across the plaza like a sniper. Jeremy waves the VR cams like talismans, tracing cryptic patterns in the air. Gingerly, the GoPro ball is placed in the fountain at the base of the obelisk, half like making an offering, half like planting a bomb. My co-conspirators scan the statue with lasers while I walk a spiral around it, taking photos at regular intervals. We climb up on the statue to get a closer look at the tableaus carved in its base, depicting Indian leaders bowing at their colonizers' feet. Artifacts of a genocidal imaginary, the narcissistic fantasies of a race of alien invaders, my own. So what Harrison's describing here is the the production of New Red Order's 2019 film, Culture Capture Terminal Edition. And it's just good to listen to someone that was part of this uh, process of making the work, so an informant within uh, this process. Uh, the, they, this idea of being, as we've been thinking about, an accomplice that is making, doing crimes against the reality of settler colonialism is depicted here in the very action of creating the work, the wearing the masks, the being armed, but it's actually to refigure and transform the culture of representation that has oh so many Columbus statues, as we know very well here in Columbus, Ohio. I remember seeing this film in the box at the Wexner Center for the Arts <clears throat> and being immediately inspired to address an Instagram post that said, Dear Fellow Set the Colonizer. And maybe that was even the origin of this very radio show. But I brought up New Red Order because we wanted to ask the question, how does this role of accomplice happen in reality? And this is what's so amazing about their work is that they create mechanisms whereby you and I, dear fellow settler colonizer, can audition for the role of informant uh, or of proxy or of someone that is deployed by New Red Order in their artistic decolonization projects. And there's a video of their work on the Art Forum website, a kind of infomercial about how to become one of these informants. And it has a uh, telephone number. So I thought while we're here on the radio, I will call this number and we'll see what it means to be a, a, an informant of the New Red Order. Thank you for calling 1888 New Red One. If you 
you'd like to participate in our informants program, press 1. If you'd like to learn more about savage philosophy, press 2. If you'd like to speak with an NRO representative about starting in on the treaty engagement process, press 3. Press 4 for more information on our Give It Back Land Drive platform. Press 5 if you would like to fulfill a financial, material, intellectual, legal, illegal, or extra-legal role in New Red Order as we seek to find a place towards the collective liberation of all. To have the menu repeated, press 8. Now, I don't want to spoil the fun by pressing any of those, but you could press 1 to become an informant, so... Yeah, call that number. And now you've been initiated into the world of the New World Order. Let us return briefly to Europe's territory. Okay, so now we are joined again by artist Chanupa Hanska-Luga, who's the concept artist of settlement, indigenous digital occupation. Uh, welcome back, Chanupa. Thanks again for coming on, dear fellow settler colonizer. Thanks again, Richard. It's nice to see you again. Yeah, you too. So, you know, this, this month we've been talking about the, the question of the uh, accomplice, questions of resisting white moves to innocence and settler moves to innocence. Uh, putting settlers like myself in our place and the limits of our agency through art projects like uh, that of New Red Order. Does this idea of the, the accomplice, the non-Indigenous accomplice, have any role in the settlement project at all? Yes, I, I believe it does have the position of accomplice, although the, the position of accomplice that we're, we're really trying to generate is, do you have the capacity to, to step aside? You know, do you have the capacity to allow space and voice? You know, oftentimes when we're dealing with accomplices, we're dealing with with folks, um, perhaps even in the position that you are, where you're transmitting ideas to, to folks and you don't necessarily have body or a person or an identity and culture that can be shared directly, you know. Um, and when that position is in place, the, the greatest form of accompliceship is to actually allow that space to, to you know, uh, transmit ideas directly, you know, the, the, the technology of idea share, you know, we're obsessed with it presently as we've leaned into um, computers and phones as a way to generate communication. And, and we get confused that we consider the mechanism, the technology, you know, and uh, the mechanism is not the technology. It's a mechanism. It's an interface. You know, the technology is the, is the sharing of an idea, you know, and so our technology helps generate that. So, you know, if, if you have the technology to actually bring the person to the location and um, share those sorts of ideas, the greatest form of accomplishment is to, is to 
create and allow that space to exist. And um, oftentimes to, you know, maybe for the first time in your cultural experience, like your silence is a tremendous, generous effort, you know, to, to allow people to, to, with voice, to use it, you know. Oftentimes we are subject to this idea of invisibility, you know, and the reality is just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's invisible, you know. Um, we've maintained our cultures under the weight of incredible pressure throughout history. And in that, it, we've also gleaned and, and you know, the, the, the practice of colonialism and the effect of it is abrasive, you know, and it grinds in both directions. And so the position that we communicate from is from the dust of this abrasion, you know, um, with the, I don't know where, where the impact of colonialism ends and the survivance of indigenous culture begins because it has been so rough in that exchange, you know, but out of that generates uh, culture, um, on our last episode, I was mentioning the idea of culture as a, as a, as a practice of maintenance, you know? And so like the idea of this, of, of generating ideas and creating culture out of response to, um, our ex external forces, there's really incredible, um, stories that can be cast that are contrary to what is written in the historical record, you know, about where we're at presently. And so, you know, that was something as far as accomplices go, the city of, of Plymouth, the funding from the, from the crown and, um, and the efforts from Fiona and Karen, uh, who are the conscious sisters to allow this space to generate and to support some of the ideas that we had with the resources that they have access to, you know, that is an incredible accomplice in that sort of effort, you know. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely hear the the question of of resources being essential and resources that that can speak and not constant messages of solidarity of allyship. Yeah, I was just going to say, like the um, there's an inherent violence in the position of ally. You know, um, to 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 stand as ally in solidarity puts you more often than not behind the front line of this sort of engagement. You know, you can stand back there and be safe um, and not really invest anything in that. And I think that's the transition that we're looking for just, you know, across the board as we engage with um, people who have benefited from, from colonial, whether that's settler or, you know, in the case of our project in the UK, we're not, we're not engaging with settler colonial people. We're engaging with, with a whole community of folks who were not on those ships and did not uh, come across the ocean and who are living a relatively provincial life and uh, therefore maybe have not understood the bounty that was reaped from our land and redistributed in theirs. So the effect of extractive colonialism is, is a conversation that we were really kind of like struggling to emphasize. And that's a difficult conversation when you're talking to a population that doesn't have incredible wealth, you know, in the, in the idea of the extraction of resources from one region to the other. So that was, a, that was a whole angle that settlement was, was you know, gearing up to engage with. And, and um, as the kind of like uh, host character of this settlement um, project, 
I traveled to the UK several times and had conversations with folks within the community. And that seemed to be something that was brought up oftentimes because UK is in the middle of Brexit right now. And it's, you know, there's so many political aspects that building a settlement in the UK really kind of sparked a lot of ideas and it created a lot of intersections also with uh, people from other parts of the world who were embedded in Plymouth and are feeling the, the, um, the weight and the pressure of you know, conservative ideas around Brexit. And it's like, you don't mm-hmm. understand when resources are, are removed from these regions and flags are planted and, and, um, and the rally cry is like, you know, Great Britain, like we're not coming to steal your jobs, we're coming to use the resources that you've reaped from our environment, you know? It's like, yeah. uh, an interesting conversation, um, especially when we start dealing with conversations around wealth and um, extractive uh, colonialism. No, definitely. For my own formation, as you know, if someone from the UK, knowing that there's a there's a kind of an internal narrative about, like, say, the wealth of London or wealth of the big cities, and and in relation to somewhere like Plymouth, half of my family is originally Scottish from from Glasgow and. And that was never um, really emphasized in my upbringing. And I often think about certain kind of micro suppressions uh, within the, the, the English hold over, uh, over the landmass uh, as well. Uh, there's a very interesting article by Alec, the artist Alec Finlay in After All about um, Scottish indigeneity and these questions, which again, I mean, it's, it's there and it's important, but it's not... Uh, this is where the kind of apologetic, the move to innocence starts to get in, right? And I think I, I'm, I'm steering clear of that myself because I, I am speaking to you, Chinupa, from the position of the settler colonizer. I am, I embody that. And I, I live that. I have that life. I have that privilege. I, I, extraction is built into my daily existence. Um, yeah. And, and that, that cannot be undone by acknowledging it. And so my, my, to be an accomplice, resources are, are important, but what else can, it's not like what else can I ask you for myself to do, but how can I be used? And that, I think that's the kind of fundamental question where I, how do, to offer yourself, not as an ally, but as a, a direct resource as much as possible. Well, I will tell you, um, a project that is embedded in settlement that we applied to the UK um, is a project that Marie Watt and I are working on for a traveling exhibition that's called Each Other. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, have a, I have a system of, of art making that was designed to generate an ally into an accomplice. And, and, I, and I've, I've, I've come up with a kind of like model for not having people invest resources as far as money, you know, into into a project, but rather their time, you know. And for me, I, I've I've looked at um, the power of social media as a as a platform for sharing ideas, you know, and generating um, support and solidarity. And my experience with it is that social media is a river that is wide and shallow. You know, it, it has an incredible ab- ability to move and generate many ideas across the globe, but the depth of that is, is very thin, you know? Um, and so if I could create a project that asks people to participate um, and help make the work, 
they're, they, they don't have to just be an ally to like and share the issue that I want to express, but they are investing their time, you know, and their effort. And time and effort is not a hard ask for any individual to do. And yet the return on that is whatever object I begin to create out of the generation of many hands working on it, they have ownership of this work without having to possess it. And the possession of the object is embedded in a lot of the systemic problems that we have as a global economic society, right? But to participate in making something, the return on that is much greater depth. And suddenly you're an accomplice in a way that you are providing your own life force and energy, and you're generating something collectively with many people. Um, and the return on that is, is so much more fulfilling than simply liking and sharing on uh, social media platforms. You know, um, you did bring up something, though, in response to uh, also a pro, you know, an aspect of settlement that I thought was kind of interesting. And that was, we encourage the Conscious Sisters to look at their indigenous roots within that landscape and really generate a relationship to the land that is one of reverence rather than resource. And looking at the indigenous populations of that region, the, the cultures and practice of folks from, from in that landscape prior to the impact of their own colonization, carried a lot of the same value systems that indigenous populations had. And it, it, asking them to do those sorts of projects allowed them to come and view our work that we were presenting to them, not as a voyeur removed from it and exotifying the people, but as a position of intersection where we can share and generate ideas mm -hmm. through customary practices of our indigenous population. From my experience going to the UK, I, what I realized was that this region had been colonized a lot longer than we had. And um, so much so that uh, as the, as the landmass became a colonial state from, let's say, um, the Roman Empire forward, but I mean, even before then, like the history of those islands is a history of um, extractive and settler colonial uh, uh, experiences. So it's not a surprise to me that that's the model that's used as it engages on empire building, you know? So I, I asked them to, to develop projects that would generate um, their own kind of indigenous relationship to the landscape and come to our sharing of ideas and work, not as a voyeur, but as a, a member of an intersecting conversation. Definitely. And, and uh, this will be something that hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about in a a future episode but having gone through the education system in the UK and the education and, and being a uh, someone that works as a professor in the US uh, I know that it's not those unlearning processes at an individual level uh, for the kind of cycles of, uh, of, of colonization within the UK uh, is, is not there it's not there it's not brought to consciousness in any way and and you're right like there's that sense of this isn't, of course, kind of um, meaning that that's enough and, and that that's enough to, to go through that kind of um, decolonization of the mind, kind of Freire kind of model. That's not enough in terms of the, the accomplice, but, but it's definitely, uh, as you say, a kind of an intersectional uh, meeting point for the conversations and for, for engagement. Yeah, let me just say my, my experience with decolonization is that 
it is a destructive effort. You have to dismantle this thing. And um, what I found is most effective to, to transform um, societal and systemic issues isn't the deconstruction of it as much as it is generating something that makes it obsolete. And so um, in encouraging people to re-indigenize their minds and their relationship to the land, to look at the land with reverence rather than resource, um, and to develop a cultural understanding of that develops a mechanism that makes colonization um, obsolete and therefore destroys it out of lack of use. You know, um, nature abhors a vacuum. And if we dismantle something uh, without having something to fill its place, oftentimes something worse does, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I should say, we'll, we'll continue this conversation hopefully next month. And thank you very much for joining me again, Shanupa. Thank you, and you're welcome. As we near the end of today's episode of Dear Fellow Settler Colonizer, I just want to pause and reflect a little bit about the path we've taken today. We started at the Columbus Museum of Art, looking back to the exhibition Objects Set by Gary Gill in her collaborative photographic works with indigenous populations and artists in India. That was one model of collaboration between indigenous and non-indigenous artists. Then we heard a little bit about the question of moves to innocence and the problems of allyship and its performativity and a shift that's necessary to get us to the accomplice. And I gave you a small taste of the challenging work of New Red Order and their calls for informants. I hope you dial that number. And then finally, we heard from Chinupa Hanskaluga, the concept artist of settlement. And I want to particularly bring attention to Chinupa's approach to collaborative art making. Uh, this project with Marie Watt that he described builds upon labor and time and attention of anybody that wants to contribute. The exhibition will be at the Denver Art Museum in uh, from May to August this year, and it's called Each Other. But what it required was people to send in a message embroidered into a bandana to create the work for the artist. So all the labor of putting the, repurposing the fabric, in, embroidering the message into it, uh, was then activated and transformed by these two artists uh, for this. So this is another way in which an accomplice can engage with indigenous art making. And I was very grateful to be part of an earlier project by Chinupa called Something to Hold On To, uh, which involves creating clay beads that were then included in an artwork. So three very different approaches to questions of collaboration, allyship, and being an accomplice. At the same time, I want to end right now by enacting something that Chinupa said in our conversation, and that was about knowing when to be silent as a settler colonizer, when to get out of the way. And I'm going to enact this by the fact that on one level, I really wanted to end today's show with some music that would counter the ridiculousness of Europe's Cherokee. And so I wanted to ask Black Belt Eagle Scout, Catherine Paul, as well as 
Camus Logue to have a song by them be the end of this episode about the accomplice. Black Belt Eagle Scout are featured in the most recent film by Roselli Benali and Red Brigade Films for The Settlement Project. And I thought it was fitting that their music conclude today. And so I reached out to them to see if they'd be open to me playing their music. While I'm waiting to hear back from them, I'm going to end this recording now. And if their music appears, it is a result of their generosity in sharing their music with me and us. But if it doesn't appear, if what comes after these words is a sequence of silence, then it's on us to listen and engage. So go and find the film on www.settlement.org, Red Brigade Films, and you'll hear their music. Thanks for listening. You.